You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Marlene Zook, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota in biology, evolution, right? couple different fields. I don't know if they're all departments, but you know, you cover a wide range of topics and you're also the author of a bunch of books. Most recent book is called Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test. I'm sure everybody's going to want to know what the dead man test is, but you also got a whole bunch of other books that I have here. This one, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex Diet and How We Live. We'll have to dig into that one. Sex on Six Legs, I think you you were talking somewhere in there about bug porn that's in there. We've got riddled with life, friendly worms, ladybug sex, and the parasites that make us who we are. And the first book, Sexual Selections, which I don't have with me. And you also write a lot for popular press. And there was, I usually don't do this, but there was a critic who said about you that you are thoughtfully profound and subtly witty. And I think that's actually a pretty accurate description because as I go through the book, I alternate between wows and chuckles because (laughs) there's some wonderful asides in there. Welcome, Marlene. Wow, thank you. I feel like I should just stop talking and let you do the whole thing because that was a very flattering introduction. I, I really appreciate that. I will point out, so I'm in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior. So that might pin down some of my fields of interest a little bit better. Yeah, I think I couldn't remember that because I don't think I'd ever seen a department with that title, right? Sounds like a pretty cool department. We're pretty proud of it. Yeah. So this latest book, I mean, it's an interesting project because I think what you're trying to do, if I could summarize it in a couple words, is you're trying to say it's pretty complex. (laughs) In other words, as a response to a lot of the popular conceptions of evolution and of biology, we've had for thousands of years, this debate going on between nature and nurture, between nomos and physis, right? And, or the nativist and empiricist conflict between, you know, what drives different aspects of creatures, physical being, and also their behavior. And you also kind of attack this simplistic notion of evolutionary progress, right? So I think those are two of the bugbears, but there's a whole bunch of others in there. And I think Unlike a lot of authors, you spend a lot of time looking at the popular press. You have some wonderful clickbait citations, right? Even things from the New York Times. And, you know, I think that those clickbait quotes, that's about as deep as most people get when it comes to understanding biology and evolution. And I think this book is designed to make at least the more educated audience understand that these simplistic narratives Maybe they should just be jettisoned completely, but I think it's hard for most people to grapple with the complexity that you're trying to explain. Is this really an argument just in favor of, let's just set aside these simplistic narratives, even though they're always going to come back as zombie narratives? 
Yeah, it's a complicated thing. It's one of those things where you feel like you're being kind of, I don't know, kind of fatuous because I remember having an interview a number of years ago for a radio show, the name of which I cannot remember. I remember the interviewer was wonderful. Her name was Desiree. Now I apologize. I can't remember her last name, but and we were going through this back and forth. It was about the paleo fantasy book. And we were going through this back and forth about evolution and, you know, what it really meant and so forth. And she was, you know, following this intricate argument. And then she paused and said, okay, so what you're really saying here is that this whole issue, and I don't even remember what the issue was, that it's complicated. And we both laugh because it's like newsflash. Science is complicated. Like we needed to have a whole half hour discussion. <laughs> to like come on to this. But I really feel like if you can internalize that complication, it's actually really liberating because you realize that you do not have to come up with the soundbite or the clickbait or whatever you want to call it and conclude that, aha, we've now arrived at the answer and this is what it is and everybody else can just, you know, go, you know, jump in a lake or whatever. It's fine to say it's complicated, because things are actually complicated. And so, you know, that we were both laughing at the idea that this was some major insight, but it actually is true. You know, things are complicated. I have an, a, another friend, geneticist, uh, Hamish Spencer, who's at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And he sent me recently a perfect example of this. There was an article in the BBC website about do genes really control our behavior? And, you know, he said it just drove him nuts because the whole thing was filled with well, you know, there's all this evidence showing that, you know, whether or not people, I don't know, like to play football or want to own a dog or want to do all this stuff. Well, there's all this genetic differences. And then there would be this series of caveats that would always say like, oh, no, no. But of course, that doesn't really mean there's a gene for dog ownership. And Hamish said, this drives me nuts because it's what a friend of mine used to call the carry on regardless approach where you acknowledge that what you're saying can't be justified because there is all this other stuff going on, and then people just carry on regardless. And so the headline, the clickbait, is to say, the headline will still say, you know, dog ownership is related to your genes, or, you know, twins always prefer the same breakfast, or, you know, something like that. And if you read the article, there's this whole cat that says, well, actually... Genes are important because, of course, you have to have genes in order to be able to have breakfast. But really, none of the rest of it works. But the only thing you remember is the clickbait title. And so it's, you know, you just carry on regardless. And I think that's a really good summary. Yeah, it reminds me in finance, you'll have investment managers who will say, hey, you know, we've outperformed the market for the last 10 years. But of course, past performance says nothing about future performance. But just saying, you know, we've, we've outperformed the market for, so everyone just kind of just skates over the disclaimer. But do you think that, I mean, we didn't know anything about genes, obviously, until the 19th century. But now, of course, we all talk about genes. Do you think that the discovery of genes has sort of revitalized this sort of essentialist view? It's kind of given more fuel to people's pursuit of of what constitutes the natural what constitutes the essential so like if we think that it's genetic then it's somehow you know more real than if it's impacted by environment huh that's a really interesting question so first of all let me point out remember we didn't know about genes qua genes it wasn't the 19th century it was the 20th remember watson and crick you know like it was 
It took a long right. but I mean, Mendel had. But but no, he didn't know what it was. I mean, it's important that people didn't actually know what the material was. That at this that there are these two things going on at once. That people have known forever that parents resemble their children, or well, children resemble their parents. I guess is a logical way to put it. But yes, we know that. We can see that. We've we've been able to see it forever, and. If you look at the history of genetics, which is really not the history of genetics so much as the history of understanding how these relationships came about. I mean, Carl Zimmer's book, you know, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, talks about this, that people were obsessed with understanding how all of this worked. So, I mean, I'm just thinking, like I said, it's an interesting question, and I, I maybe I'd have to think about it some more, but I actually don't think it depends on us understanding the molecules or the structures that are involved to still attribute so much to what's inherited. People have always had this idea about essentialism, as you say, or or this idea that, you know, what you can pass along. The big obsession in a lot of the 19th century, again, they didn't understand about genes, but they really wanted to understand how people pass along insanity. Like that was the big obsession, you know, like one of the first interests in behavioral genetic. Well, of course, it also had to do with, you know, breeding and we wanted cows that produced more milk and, you know, corn that grew taller and made more ears and so forth. But, you know, in terms of my interest, in terms of behavior, what everybody wanted to understand, it looks like, if you look at the history, is, you know, when people were insane and how they passed that along to their offspring and what that would mean. You know, people were really, really interested in this. And the early, a lot of the earliest studies of behavioral what we would now call behavioral genetics had to do with exactly that, um, which is kind of an odd statement. I don't know, maybe it's not an odd statement, but it's an interesting statement about social priorities. Well, people seem to be more comfortable with the notion that your height, let's say, or your eye color is something that is heritable. They seem to be less comfortable with the idea that your behavioral tendencies or proclivities are inherited. First of all, there's no clear dividing line between behavior and non-behavior. So maybe we could talk about why there is that sort of hesitancy around behavior. But I guess the first thing we need to define is behavior. I teach a course on behavioral finance and no one, it's, it's amazing. I've never asked and no one in the class has ever asked for a definition of behavior. We just kind of go through and talk about behavior. But, you know, you ask this question, well, is a white blood cell behaving, right? You know, is a Venus flytrap behaving. Do we have a clear understanding of what is behavior? Yeah, that I got interested in, actually in part because of a former student of mine who wanted to do a little project on it for a a course. Um, And she said, oh, I want to talk about definitions of behavior. And I just thought, oh, yawn. That just doesn't really seem very interesting at all. And and when I taught animal behavior, I would just always say, okay, we're going to call behavior what animals do and be done with it. And then we're going to move on. But it turns out that understanding those marginal situations like the white blood cell moving around in the body or like the venus flytrap closing on a fly they're interesting ways to think about behavior not so much because we absolutely have to have a hard and fast definition because otherwise like science won't be able to function because there's lots of things that have fuzzy definitional boundaries you know what's a species or you know like you can make legitimate arguments about things and the boundaries are fuzzy and it's fine and it doesn't mean we can't function I think with behavior, what's interesting about thinking about the fuzzy boundaries, and and certainly there's people who will say that they think plant behavior is fine, and when I give talks or when I used to teach, 
about behavior that I'd show people videos and I'd ask them to vote, you know, like, so do you think that a, like a Venus flytrap or for that matter, even, you know, a sunflower opening, is that behaving? And you'd get, a, you know, most people, well, let's leave non-living things out of it. And let's not also talk about the definition of life because then we'll never get anywhere. But assuming that we have live things and assuming that plants are alive, so let's, let's work with me here. So do you think that, you know, the sunflower opening is behaving? And the people that say, well, yes, of course, then you say, well, okay, is digestion behaving? How do you figure this out? And, you know, behavior and physiology, of course, you know, like is a nerve impulse behaving? There's movement involved. There's an electrical impulse. Is that behavior? Or do you have to actually see muscles working for it to be behavior? We don't have to like have a, a long and really tedious discussion about it. The reason I think it's important is that I think there's not this clear distinction between behavior and other characteristics. So as you say, people are fine with height. They're not so crazy about, you know, intelligence or sexual orientation having to do with genes. But the thing is, environment affects height too, and genes affect intelligence, but environment also affects intelligence. And so one of the points I often try to get across is that you have this entanglement where it's not like, oh, both of them play a role, but one of them wins. So height is mostly genetic or intelligence is mostly environmental. It's that pitting them with each other just doesn't, it doesn't seem productive. It's not going to get you anywhere. And, you know, I think a lot of it is our fault as scientists that I, I think one of the most unfortunate terms in biology is heritability um, because people instantly think it means, oh, how heritable is something? Therefore, how much is it dictated by your genes? Well, nothing is dictated by your genes. It's, that's just not how genes work. So we end up in this, this real mess. And so the reason I think talking about what behavior is is interesting is because it lets you see this blurring between behavior and other characteristics. One other thing that I think is funny about this is that you say people aren't comfortable with talking about, you know, the genetics behind particular behaviors. And they kind of are and kind of aren't because the one place where I think it's interesting that people do want to talk about the inherent nature of behaviors is when they talk about talent, you know, and they'll talk about, oh, you know, so-and-so has an innate ability to play the piano, you know, like Mozart's just doing this stuff at four. Nobody thinks anybody could give someone the same environment that they gave Mozart and they would be like Mozart, right? Weird. Some, be, some like, parents are trying to. <laughs> well, absolutely. But, but you know, it's like, where did, you know, like we think that, ooh, there's almost this spooky thing about people who are amazingly talented, whether it's piano or basketball or, you know, figuring out, you know, who's going to win a horse racer or whatever. I think we have this funny kind of back and forth about the way we feel about what's innate and what's not. And I've been fascinated by that for a long time. Well, I mean, I think uh, lawyers are sympathetic to your frustration because we always have these big debates over causation. And so ultimately we've come up with this thing called, you know, but for causation, right? So, but for this thing, you wouldn't get this result. But for this thing, you know, you wouldn't get this result. And it doesn't mean that it's causation in the sense that we normally think of it. It's just sort of a, you know, necessary precondition. And I was always very frustrated. When I teach statistics, I'm always really frustrated by these attempts to assign kind of percentages to the different 
kinds of causes or drivers, right? So like heritability, because it, it depends on, you know, the variation that you have, right? So you use this example of these two trays of plants, and then, you know, you put the trays under slightly different environmental conditions, and then you get variation within the trays and you get variation across the trays. But I mean, all you have to do is kind of move those trays further and further and further apart and make the environment radically different. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a different quote amount of heritability, right? So, I mean, those percentages are completely context dependent, right? You know, the GWAS number is something that everybody focuses on, but it seems like kind of something made up or engineered. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely. And I, the problem with the heritability measure is that if you say the heritability of trait A is, you know, 40%, then people, you know, like they should be forgiven for thinking that that means that 40% of that trait comes from your genes. That is not what it means. It's a population measure. It means that, you know, 40% of the variation in a population will come from genetic differences in that population, which is not a very sexy thing to say because people don't really understand what that means anyway, but you know, cause it is, it's a population level measure. It's not an individual level measure. I mean, said every person that ever taught statistics ever, um, you know, like no one understands probability. No one understands that, it, you know, how it works, not on an individual level. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I don't know. Um, like I said, I, you know, I'm willing to take my share of the blame by being a biologist that I don't know who came, I don't even know who came up with the word about heritability. And, I understand what it's getting at, and it's getting at something that we do understand, that stuff comes from the genes, but the way it comes from the genes isn't a zero-sum game. It just isn't. You don't have X percent of environment and X percent of genetics put together to make a trait. It, we, you just don't. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's sort of another thing altogether to try and understand why people are so reluctant like, why is it so fascinating to, to want to assign, you know, like these percentages? Why do we want to declare that it's environmental or it's not environmental or whatever? I, I don't know. Some psychologist would have to figure that one out. Well, we're all interested in, in human uniqueness, right? So, I mean, I've had a ton of podcasts where the main question was, you know, what makes humans different? And so sometimes it's language, sometimes it's tool use, right? And sometimes it's culture. And, you know, I think you, along with a lot of your colleagues, have set out to blur those distinctions and say, well, you know, when you dig a little deeper, you know, you find tool use all over the place. You find some kind of language in certain places. Why is it that we keep kind of going back to that idea of uniqueness? I mean, does it just go back to the great chain of being and the scala naturae and this desire to believe that we are kind of the pinnacle of evolution? I mean, is evolution just replaced the theologies that came before it to kind of put humans at the top of the peak? I really should just let you go on and finish this because, yeah, that's exactly where I would have gone with this is that I think, you know, sometimes I wonder if it has to do with, you know, sort of everybody having some sort of religious or theological or, you know, whatever approach to the world that, you know, we're trying to make sense of something that seems very complicated and, you know, sure, humans are different. Like, it's not like I'm trying to argue that humans aren't different. I just think that trying to create, you know, as I say in the book, like, people are just really obsessed with kind of trying to create this club that has humans at the center. And then, okay, we're going to admit other creatures into this club. 
if they have certain characteristics, what are those characteristics going to be? And as you say, you know, sometimes we'll say tool use. And then we're going, oh, crap, a lot of things can use tools. Hmm. Do I really want to be in a club with like these weird little ants like that can make siphons out of sand grains? That doesn't seem very inspiring. Okay, I know. Let's do the language thing. And like, let's, you know, define language and, you know, whatever. I mean, you could create lots of different kinds of clubs based on other characteristics. And one of the things I often point out is that no one ever wants to make a club based on characteristics that humans don't have. Like you could make a club of animals that can hibernate. You know, our animals that can fly. I mean, in some ways that would be an interesting thing to do because you could say, oh, well, so isn't it cool that bats and birds and, you know, butterflies can all fly, but they all have really different wings that arose from different places and they depend on different physiological processes and blah, blah, blah. And we could just go on and on about who cares about that? Because people can't fly, so we're not interested. It just doesn't matter to us. And so why does it matter so much to us to have things in our club or not in our club? Like, where are we going with this? And it's never been completely clear to me. I mean, some of where we're going with it, I think, is to create a sense of continuity with other animals. And I like that idea. One of the things that I think is super cool about evolution is that it shows you the connectedness among living things. I mean, how awesome is that? But to go from there to creating these, as you say, this scale of nature, this chain of being and saying, okay, well, this one is next to me because it's better than the one that's behind it. And the ones that are next to me are better than the ones that aren't next to me. That just seems futile. But why is it wrong to talk about more evolved and less evolved? Because people will point to an alligator and they'll say, well, you know, this alligator hasn't really changed all that much since, you know, the stone age right <laughs> you know the, whatever million years ago way before the stone age um. right. people <laughs> um. you know we've we've look at us we've got Australopithecus and you know homo ergaster and we've gotten better and the cockroach they're just sitting there doing the same thing they've always been doing so arguably no they're not we could talk about cockroaches because cockroaches are a good example i love cockroaches but to more to your point if you really wanted to pick an example of a living thing that has changed a ton incredibly quickly don't use humans use microbes the virus that you know the covid vi like what look at the world we are in if you want something that's evolved incredibly quickly you take covid-19 it's evolved way faster than people. We just look like people. COVID-19 looks really, really different than it did two years ago. So that kind of argumentation is, oh, we want to look at something that's changed its genes more quickly. All right, again, you want to set that up as a club? Go for it. The whole club is going to be microbes. The whole club. There will be no animals in that club. They will all be microbes. So happy now. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and then we, we know the way we depict, we have those pictures, you know, where we have our ancestor on all fours and then, you know, he starts getting a little bit, standing a little bit taller. And then, you know, he's sitting at the laptop at some yeah. point, right? But the thing is, you know, when we point to our fellow primates, I think your point is that, well, you know, we should be looking at them sort of sideways rather than in the rear view mirror, right? Yeah, that's like this old creationist, you know, thing of, of like, well, if we evolved from, from chimpanzees, why are there still chimpanzees? Um, you know, and the answer, of course, is that A, we did not evolve from chimpanzees, and, you know, B, they're still chimpanzees because the common ancestors of both of us, you know, were a long time ago, and so 
there's the branching pattern, you know, the tree of life. And, and so, yeah, people like the line and they like the ladder and it, you know, it's just not a line and it's not a ladder. I, those cartoons about the evolutionary progression, I, I, for a while I was collecting them, I kind of stopped. And one of the things that I always found fascinating about them was that, well, first of all, um, I, I have a lot of interest in, you know, sex and gender and evolution. And um, I always, it always kind of cracked me up that they never showed it. There was never a woman. There was a fish, then the squidgy amphibian, and then the reptile. And of course, you can't tell what sex they are, so fine. And then you'd have, you know, the primitive mammal and blah, blah, blah. And you'd always end up with a primate that looked kind of like an early human. And it was always male and it was always carrying a spear. Like, it was like spears were apparently a really big deal. Like, they always had a spear. Um, and so that kind of cracked me up. So it was funny because they never showed any females in, in any of that, um, which I thought was amusing. Um, but, you know, the other thing was that it's not like we've replaced fish. There are still fish. Like, you know, sure, we evolved from fish. There are still fish. Like, why doesn't anybody ever ask that one? And this idea that, you know, like I said, life is connected. And I, I really like the idea of looking at other creatures to understand the connections among organisms. But, you know, yeah, we evolved from fish. There's still fish. We evolved from reptiles. There's still reptiles. Some, you know, creatures look more like their ancestors than others. Where are you okay, like, that's significant. Why? But you also talk about intelligence. And, you know, a lot of people fixate on intelligence with, of course, humans as being the most intelligent. I mean, isn't there some directionality here in terms of, of complexity? I had a podcast earlier where it was all about entropy and how, you know, entropy is reduced and information is increasing. And isn't there something, I guess, unique about humans in the way in which we kind of transmit information and behavior is, I guess, quote, less genetic. I mean, an octopus, right? The octopus egg disperses at birth and, you know, it's out there doing all sorts of stuff. The termites, they don't consult the textbook when it comes to building the, the mounds, right? If you throw a bunch of kids on a desert island, you know, they're not going to build the World Trade Center, right? Because they don't have that written inscribed in their DNA, so, I mean, it does seem to be something about humans that is different in terms of the amount of information that's contained in, I guess, cultural artifacts. Yeah. So what you're getting at is what sometimes people talk about evolutionary transitions or the evolution of complexity. And there is absolutely no doubt that, you know, there, there are more complex, you know, again, you can squibble about the definition, but there's certainly more complex um, life now than there was hundreds of millions of years ago. But the interesting thing is that it's hard to pin down what those transitions are and what they mean. And biologists have been discussing this for a long time. And it's interesting you bring up termites because one of the major evolutionary transitions is thought to be evolution of complex social behavior, which termites have arguably more in a more complex way than people do, right? Because they have uh, what are called eusocial societies where there are sterile castes, um, individuals that can't reproduce. There's other, you know, there's the king and queen termite in, you know, bees and wasps and ants. They have, you know, a single queen that or often can have a single queen that makes all the offspring. That's incredibly complex and it's way more complex than the ancestral form of behavior, Okay. So what's responsible for triggering those transitions? That's an interesting question to ask, but it's a very different one than saying, why are people so amazing? 
<laughs> Why are we just on top? Right. You know, because what you want to do is say, all right, yeah. what is it I want to understand about, as you say, that complexity, about that interaction with the environment? Where did that come from? That's an interesting question. Why are people the most awesome is not. Right. Well, we're best adapted for the environment in which we find ourselves, and, and the other creatures are best adapted for the environments in which they find themselves, and there's, there's no, absolutely no reason why a cockroach would, would want to read, right? I, I mean, arguably, we're not all that well adapted for the environment that we're in now because we seem to be messing it up pretty badly. And, you know, like if, if you know, I, I suppose we don't want to take a dark turn into climate change, but, um, you know, certainly the idea that humans have done a super job at, uh, you know, adapting ourselves to the world in which we're living is arguable. Well, we can take a detour into the paleo fantasy book, right? Because, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who are interested in this kind of mismatch theory, right? And, and it was in Riddled with Life, you talked a bit about evolutionary medicine. And, I, and I've spoken to some folks about exercise and, and some others about diet. And so there does appear to be this trend that's gained popular purchase around the notion that we are living in a world for which we are not very well adapted. And so the goal is to kind of go back to our environment of evolutionary adaptation. And I think, you know, you highlight is like, well, okay, well, why the Pleistocene? Why don't we pick something that's earlier or later? And so what's legitimate about this approach and, and what are you concerned about with this approach? What do you find a little bit less uh, intellectually <laughs> coherent? Yeah, I mean, I do think there's something there, and I think people recognize that, you know, I mean, well, there's two aspects. It's one of them is that it's sort of a kids these days argument, you know, is that people have been complaining about the modern generation since there have been people able to complain about the modern generation. So, you know, like the Romans were complaining about kids these days and so forth, and like, oh, it was better a long time ago, and we were better suited to what we were doing and so forth. So, so there is a little bit of that in there, too. But... I think the idea of mismatch is mismatch is real, but what it illustrates is how evolution actually works, which is full of trade-offs and things that are just okay but functional, and that evolution doesn't produce organisms that are perfect for their environment because it can't. Evolution can only produce something based on what's already there. And the, the analogy that's often made is the one that was made by a, a Francois Jacob, who was a, a Nobel laureate from early part of the 20th century. Now I can't remember when, when he won the Nobel Prize. But um, anyway, the idea is that um, evolution is a tinkerer and not an engineer. And by a tinkerer, um, which is also kind of an old-fashioned term, you mean uh, a tinkerer is someone that, you know, makes things out of using the parts they have lying around. You know, it's it's the person who you know, build something in the garage out of old bicycle components and a couple of two by fours and whatever, and it makes a bridge and, okay, it doesn't look great, but it, it suffices to get you across the river. An engineer says, this is what we need, draws up blueprints, um, makes things to purpose and creates something that's exactly right. Well, evolution has to be a tinkerer because you can't make something out of nothing. And so what you're using are the genes that are already lying around the garage, so to speak. Well, if there's pressure to get something across the river, but you can't do that without also, you know, incurring some other cost, then you're going to have something that is sort of okay, but good enough. 
And an example I like to give, which actually wasn't in the paleo fantasy book because I found out about it later. Um, so everybody's had an experience of, you know, something going down the wrong pipe, as it were. So you're trying to eat or drink and it goes down the wrong way and you start to cough and you're, you're choking, right? I mean, I assume I usually ask audiences how many of you have had that happen. And what's amazing to me is that not everyone will raise their hand. I don't know what they think I'm going to do to them if, if like they raise their hand. Like, like, I'm not going to call on you. I'm just using, using this as an example. Um, anyway, because everybody's had that happen to them. Well, the reason you have that happen to you is that the way your esophagus is located in your throat relative to your trachea, so the way food goes down as opposed to the way air goes down, has to do with the way your tongue is arranged in your mouth and your jaw. If you look at a chimpanzee, if you look at a cross-section of a chimpanzee skull, you see that the tongue is arranged differently and the trachea and esophagus are very separate from each other. And so they don't have that problem. When they swallow food, they swallow food and it goes in the right place. But humans don't. There's, you know, some anatomical you know, differences that mean that, that, you know, you can have this kind of cross thing going on. And so we can swallow stuff and it goes in the place that air was supposed to go into. Well, why is that? The idea is that it's because the way human throat is arranged, it allows for the tongue to move and the throat muscles and so forth for us to speak. Okay, well, talking's kind of a big deal in people. Like being able, you know, evolving speech is a huge, I don't think anybody would argue that that didn't enormously, you know, advance, make more complex, however you want to put it, our evolution. But you can't make a speech organ out of nothing. You have to make it out of what was there before. And let me reiterate that this does not mean that humans evolved from chimpanzees. I'm, ta I'm using the chimpanzee as an example because you can get, you know, you can also look at early human throats and it's the same thing, but it's, this is, it's just a good analogy. So, okay, evolution makes a trade-off. And so we've got this mismatch between our environment and being able to do something like swallow our food without risk of choking. And in case you think, incidentally, that this is not a big deal, I looked up the statistics and I now can't remember them. Choking, like accidental choking, is like a, a reasonable cause of death in people. Like it's a thing. But evolution is not going to rule it out because talking is more important. And so more people benefited and had more babies by being able to talk then died from choking, and so that's what evolution did. Sorry, that's a long story, but I, I think it's important for the mismatch thing because it illustrates that, no, we're not perfectly adapted to our environment. If evolution was perfect, we wouldn't choke on our food. So it's like we're getting stuck on a local hill in the fitness landscape, right? Maybe there is some way of engineering your throat so that you can both talk and not choke, but there's no path to getting there from where we are. Right, exactly. And it's not like somebody's saying, oh, crap, you know, if humans go down that path, they're going to end up, you know, choking on their... I mean, if, if too many of us had choked in our on our food, then we wouldn't have evolved speech, right? I mean, it's just, it's just hard for people to understand that it, that kind of compromise is just happening all the time. And the implication of that is not that there aren't mismatches, but that the mismatches were always with us. Um, I mean, you could look at the structure of our lungs, and it's not... It's because we evolved from aquatic creatures, and so we need to have stuff that's wet. And, like, what kind of a mess is that? I, you know, you can imagine lots of things that make us mismatch, but it doesn't mean that we should all be longing for the days when we were aquatic. I mean, that, you know, 
to make a really bad pun, that ship has sailed. Here we are. And it is interesting because people are very fascinated with this idea that, oh, but back in the day, everything was wonderful. And, you know, and some of it's this worship of, you know, oh, well, you know, humans used to be in perfect harmony with their environment and, you know, so on and so forth. And Well, you also point out some of the misconceptions. I think, you know, there's this thing called the paleo diet, right, which is high in meat. And I think you highlight that we were adapted to consuming grains and carbohydrates far earlier than people think. Yeah, the diet thing, that was funny because I, I had not realized, I mean, I'd heard of the paleo diet, but it was certainly not why I had, like, why I was interested in writing the book. And, and But the book seemed to come out around when paleo diet was really, really popular. And so I got a lot of weird emails from people, uh, some of which were very angry. Um, I, I used to have to give interviews like with this this sort of disclaimer at the very beginning saying that I am not a dietitian and I'm not trained in diet, you know, like in nutrition and I don't really care what you eat. I Like, I really don't. Like, no, one person wanted to interview me and said, okay, well, let's start by talking about what you had for breakfast. And it's like, no, I really don't want to talk about what I had for breakfast because it's really not relevant. Um, anyway, the point being, yeah, the diet thing is interesting, but I think that again, you know, there's diet fads all the time. I, you know, and that one was an interesting one because people seem to feel like it was more natural and, you know, and, and again, there is this sort of element of truth to it because it's true. Like people who went from living on Cheetos and diet Coke to eating like chicken and kale, guess what? They got healthier, you know, but that's not because the ancestral diet was chicken and kale, right? I mean, that's not the point. I mean, nobody's suggesting that a diet of junk food is going to be good for you and that just because somebody invented Twinkies, that means they're perfect for us. Well, I think some people think that evolution happens a lot slower than it does. Others think it happens a lot faster than it does. And my favorite example of, quote, recent evolution is this idea around lactose tolerance. And I think a lot of people point to that as an example of kind of recent evolutionary change. But you you dig deeper into just the whole idea of evolutionary speed, right? Do we have a way of, of measuring, right? You offered up a couple of these metrics that have been out there. Does it make sense to talk about the speed of evolution and it's speeding up or slowing down? I mean, isn't that just a function of how quickly the environment is changing? No, I, I mean, I, I, th I think it's super interesting thinking about rapid evolution. I mean, it's one of the things I've done research on. I, lots of people are interested in it. I think thinking about evolution as on, and, and it also helps us because it, it helps us think about evolution as being ongoing and not as something that, you know, A, always takes millions of years, or B, stops, and then, phew, you know, we're done evolving. That's the other thing about those those cartoons, about the progression of forms. Sometimes the guy's sort of hunched in front of the laptop. Sometimes he's... Um, eating like a burger and fries. Sometimes, you know, he's doing all kinds of stuff. And, and the argument is, haha, we've now st stopped evolving and we're kind of regressing or so forth. And again, both of those ideas are that it's, we're moving towards something. And we weren't, we're not moving toward anything. Um, it's just stuff changes. And saying that, oh, it was better at a particular point in time is misconstruing the way evolution happens. It's not progressing toward anything. And that one's a really hard one for people to understand. And I don't know, I'd have to be a better armchair psychologist than I am to, to say why people want to 
feel like they're reaching their goals. And I, you know, maybe that's one of these Western things of you want to be able to know that you've hit your 10,000 steps for the day or something. And so, by God, have I evolved enough? You know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. I, I can't figure it out. But anyway, the point being that evolution's going on all the time. Um, it's interesting to think about things that, you know, so you can think about things that change rapidly and things that don't. We have to think about things that change rapidly and things that don't um, in animals and plants that we use because, you know, rapid evolution is why we have not just lactose tolerance, but why we have cows that can make milk that's way more milk than they used to be able to make. It's because, you know, admittedly it's through artificial selection and not through natural selection, but we want to understand, you know, how quickly can you get rice to, you know, make more grains than it has? How quickly can you do all of this different stuff? And if you don't understand the speed at which you get a response to selection, you're never going to be able to breed plants that you like. You're never going to be able to change an environment the way you want. And certainly environmental pressures change that too. The best example, of course, is, you know, disease organisms, like I said, that change the environment and, you know, the disease organisms are going to change too. Well, humans seem to be the agent of selection for so many of these other plants and animals and insects even. And I guess farmers they seem to have a better understanding of how behavior, for instance, is inherited than, than we do, non-farmers. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I worry a little bit about the phrase, you know, folk understand, because, you know, people have understood how life works for a long time, but way before scientists came along and said, oh, look, there's DNA. So, you know, yeah, like I said, people have understood that, you know, humans are not a blank slate, that, you know, you inherit things from your parents forever. So it's not like, you know, they just didn't get it. I think that this argument about, you know, oh, how much can you change someone or are they just destined to be a couch potato forever as opposed to some other people who are going to be prime athletes is something that, to go back to our first point, is just really complicated. And everybody wants the, oh, I'm a morning person and it's because I have X gene. Yeah, but... People can change a lot of stuff about their behavior. You know, the, the, the being a lark or an owl is one of the big examples that people use, and it's clear that there are genes associated with your circadian rhythm and so forth. But it's still not one of these things where it's, you know, it's, you dictate how, what people are like and you give them one gene and it's inherited in a certain way. And it's just not how anything works. My, my favorite example in the book was you said that heritability of having a head is 100% environmental because... The main determinant is, the, you know, the presence of a guillotine. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm using that in my class. By by all means, and I do, you know, again, that's a good example of talking about, you know, why talking about heritability is is odd because, yes, the heritability of having a head is, you know, in a sense, it's zero because whether or not you have a head doesn't depend on your genes, and there's lots of other examples of that. And that one's been around for a while, but, but yes, again, coming back to this, you know, people. They carry on regardless, like my friend Hamish says, that, that you know, they, they'll say, you know, oh, of course, it's complicated. And yet, look, there's this gene that people who are wealthy have that people who aren't wealthy don't have. And you're just like, oh, my God, are we ever going to stop this? So with respect to behavior, I mean, that's the, the, I think the main thrust of the book is, you know, the evolution of behavior. You introduced the idea of kind of behavioral family trees, Right. So we can kind of go back and look at the lineage of these different behaviors and the, where these behaviors come from. My favorite example in the book was this 
spider-tailed viper. I had to look up the videos of this thing. And when I saw the video, I was- Did you look up the, the videos? They're awesome. I was amazed. I was looking at it on YouTube and I, and I could not believe it. There was another example of octopuses whacking fish. And I mentioned this to someone. It's like, oh yeah, of course I've seen that video. So there's like a meme of the spiteful octopuses. When you see this behavior, I think the project you're describing is you want to go back and figure out like, how could that thing have gotten started? Right. Cause I mean, it seems like once it gets started, then you can sort of see how it takes place. Right. If the spider looks more like a spider, then yeah, you know, you'll do a better job. If it moves more like a spider, but like, where did the original idea come from? I mean, it had to have some, had to come from some other pre-existing tool, right? Some pre-existing attribute that was there. Some snake at some point had to have some little aberration that gave it a tiny, tiny, tiny advantage, right? Yeah, no, you've just explained it exactly. And saying that you had to have the tool, you know, again, going back to the tinkerer versus engineer, it just depends on what's lying around in the garage. And if you have, you know, snakes have tails, all snakes have tails. They're kind of, it kind of defines them because they're just these long cylinder things. So by definition, you can't have a snake without having a, t a snake tail. And if you have a snake tail and there's a family of snakes as there are that has protuberances on their tail that, you know, are used in other contexts, all you need is a variant that has protuberances that stick out a little farther and that distract a bird for a second and then it looks like a little bit and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so these, this is what fascinated Darwin is these endless modifications of very small effect over thousands and thousands and thousands of generations that, you know, with selective reproduction, it's incredibly powerful. And I think part of why I like thinking about rapid evolution is that it lets you see the process in by kind of cheating, you know, like you see it, oh, okay, this is what it would look like if it could happen really fast. But most of the time it happens so slowly that I can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine. Because remember that the tail is changing at the same time. And, and by the way, like just PSA here. Um, well, two PSAs. PSA one is if you're snake phobic, don't look. PSA two is if you're not snake phobic, oh my God, you have to look. Um, so they're spider-tailed vipers. They're incredible. Uh, you know, they have this thing on their, the end of the body that looks exactly like a spider crawling around. The first time I saw it, I thought, oh, they just made one as a mock-up with a real spider so you could see that. And then I realized afterwards, that's ridiculous. Why would anyone do that? But that's how, we're, that's how, how amazing it looks. So I'm glad you saw it. I also had another uh, friend of mine who, who read the book, who also immediately looked at the video saying that he thinks that those spider snakes would be the perfect gift for any nine-year-old that you know um, because they would be just such awesome pets. They would be fabulous. So I don't know if anybody's going to go out and start breeding them and selling them as pets, um, it, given how venomous they are. Probably not a great idea. But anyway, they are fa fantastic. So understanding the, the length of time over which that happened, we're almost incapable of thinking about it. But it happened the same way that other evolutionary complex traits or other complex traits evolved. Now, I'm, I'm sure that when you get interviewed by journalists, they ask you about rapid evolution of humans in the current moment. It seems like in order for you to get rapid evolution, though, you need to have some selective pressure. So, you know, one could imagine that if you have the bubonic plague, right, you know, then boom, that's going to, obviously, it's going to do something, right? I mean, I don't know if there was any kind of immunological resistance that emerged out of that. But, I mean, you're going to have some kind of evolution take place with these 
massive differentials in reproductive success. But it seems like, I mean, in today's world where, I mean, the drivers of reproductive success don't appear to be driven by factors that are genetic in any way, right? I mean, do we have any reason to believe that the current environment is putting evolutionary pressure on us? I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, now that everybody uses Google Maps, we won't need a hippocampus anymore. <laughs> you know, we'll just kind of get rid of it. And that's a plausible story, but I'm not sure exactly how people who rely more on Google Maps are going to have, you know, more offspring than people who don't. Well, but that, but that's exactly, your last statement is exactly the key. So I read an interview with a primatologist, Mary Pavelka, who's at the University of Calgary um, at the time. And she said, you know, the question about this is, is not, you know, about are humans still evolving? It's do people have different numbers of children? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Of course, people have different numbers of children. And differential reproduction and differential passing on of genes is what you need for evolution. Those genes are always going to interact with the environment. They always have interacted with the environment. Even when it comes to the bubonic plague story, there are some interesting things about other genes that evolved at the same time and about potential you know, immunity and so on and so forth. But yeah, all you need is for, for things to evolve is for people to reproduce differentially and people have always reproduced differentially. And then that interacts with the environment, which means that trying to say, oh, aha, we're going to try to, you know, see where evolution is going or are we going to end up with two heads or are we going to lose our hippocampus? Man, I wouldn't want to take any bets on that one because there's too much else going on. You know, reference aforementioned, it's complicated, right? But yes, you can demonstrate genetic change in populations. It's easier to do in populations where they're relatively separated from other individuals. You can measure, you know, genes that are in that population and not in other populations um, and so forth. But there's tons of really cool examples, people who live at high altitudes having genes that enable them to use oxygen more efficiently. Um, you know, there's tons of others that, that show, and that that happened, you know, relatively recently. There's tons of others that, that you can look at. So this idea that oh, you know, somehow modern medicine has lifted us out of evolution is not true. It's just changed the way differential reproduction happens. I mean, you don't have 14 kids and lose all but two. Well, I think towards the end of the book, you talk about, you know, there are the romantics and the killjoys in your field. And, you know, the romantics really, they help you see kind of the beauty in evolution, right? The awe right? And the killjoys are kind of the ones that say, yeah, everything's complicated. It all depends. And there's nothing special about this or that. And I think you're trying to thread that needle. I mean, do you spend half of the time being killjoy for the people that are <laughs> emphasizing human exceptionalism and then half the time being a romantic when you're dealing with the people who lose that sense of awe? Because I mean, when you read your books on the insects, there's awe in every chapter, right? I mean, you clearly are a fan of these bugs, right? And these insects. And so, you know, are you a romantic? Are you a killjoy? Flip back and forth. How would you think of yourself? 
I, I have a subheading that I often use in, in talks, and now I can't remember whether it's, I think it is in the book, um, about, you know, putting the joy back in Killjoy. And that partly comes from the, a terrific <laughs> article um, that uh, uh, psychologist Sarah Shettleworth from the University of Toronto wrote about, you know, these killed so-called Killjoy explanations, where she was saying, like, people are very pejorative. Like, if you find a, a relatively simple explanation for what people were like, ooh, this was amazing, like, how did this work? And you say, oh, well, I see how it works. It works from, you know, this gene that affected that nerve that then made this happen and so forth. And when you find the mechanism, I don't know, I hadn't thought about this before, but but a long time ago, I think, I think somebody was talking about how, you know, that scientists um, take away the wonder of life if they explain how a rainbow is made. And now I can't remember. Was Mark Twain mm. involved in that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I just, I remember Emily Dickinson said that the scientists dissected the poetry out of the songbird. Right. And, and also that, you know, but, but there was something about, you know, under, if you understand how a rainbow is made, then it, it reduces it. And I think that to me, being a scientist means that, like, I don't understand that attitude at all. That I feel like, un, like, like knowing something about, how a process works or knowing something about an animal's behavior makes it way more exciting and way more extraordinary than not. Because otherwise, if you just look at an animal and you make it like, oh, look, look at that butterfly. She's just trying to get the best thing for her babies because she's worried about this. You know, then you're just making them into little people and you're just saying, oh, everything's like me. Well, that's not very interesting. Then you haven't learned anything. You've just made stuff up. And I don't find that very satisfying. I think it's way more satisfying to realize that you don't understand how it works and that they're not like you. And so that, I think, is way more inspiring for trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, I remember that I'm trying, I'm, now I'm going to have to look that up about something about the rainbow and maybe Mark Twain was involved in this, but you know, that the scientists are destroying all the fun and wonder by coming up with their explanations. And I feel like wow, if you need to have something be unexplained in order to think it's cool, that's just weird. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there is something to the idea that we're interested in animals in part because it helps us to understand ourselves better. As a humanist, I think it's important to, to spend time studying animals. And they're not mutually contradictory, right? To be a humanist and to uh, be fascinated with animals, I think they go together. Last question I have for you. In this book, um, you quote a lot of academics and a lot of scientists, but you also quote a lot of science writers and you kind of give them equal status in your book. And, you know, I interview mostly academics, but occasionally I interview journalists and kind of science writers. It seems unusual. Most academics don't really give science writers much uh, bandwidth in their writing. Is there a divide there? Is there anything that academics can learn from the non-academics and how they see the world? That's really, I had a really interesting conversation about this with someone who's a science writer. And I was saying that at some point I want to write about how it's different being a practicing scientist who also writes for the public versus being someone who's a journalist, as you say, someone who, you know, is a science writer and is doing it. For, and and I, I don't think there's like a, oh, this one's better, that one's better. There are differences. So as a scientist, I, I write about stuff, but I'm, I'm in there. I have a dog in the hunt and I have an opinion about something. If you're a science writer and you're writing about a topic, you know, you really shouldn't do that because you're writing about it differently. 
And on the one hand, it means that sometimes you don't get the inside baseball reasons for why people have opinions. But it can also, which I think can be a shortcoming, but it can also mean that you're better able to understand where different points of view are coming from. So I really like both perspectives. I mean, I, you know, I'm a scientist through and through, but I also really admire people who are coming at this from the point of view of understanding what the science itself means. Well, Marlene, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. We didn't even touch on your insect books. They're pretty, they're pretty cool. I recommend them. So all of your works, most recently, Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test, and this will send you off in a lot of different directions, and it will get you to buy a whole bunch of other books. So appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.